All right, take your Bibles and find your way to Mark chapter 1, Matthew, and then the second gospel is Mark, but it's not the second gospel. We learned over a couple of weeks that it actually was the earliest gospel. Uh, Matthew um, used Mark's gospel as, as a template for his, um, as did Luke. So uh, Mark is the earliest of the gospels written, written by John Mark. And we see later on in the book of Acts in that history. Uh, so this is someone who is connected to Peter um, and, and was at, at least a companion, if not a son, of Peter. And uh, so he had some firsthand information about the story, the historical account of Jesus of Nazareth. He's writing probably, well... Both while Paul is under arrest in Rome, he is in Rome, Mark is, uh, with Paul, and he is writing this gospel probably while Paul is under house arrest. And he's writing it to the Roman Christians, which would have been majority Gentiles of just a few Jews, but mostly a Gentile audience, who would be fairly ignorant of Jewish uh, laws and customs. Um, we also see that there are actually some Latin phrases and Latin words that show up in Mark's gospel because his readers would have understood that. That would have been their native tongue. Um, and so with all that being said, we, we, we learn that Mark is all about getting things done quickly. Right? The, the word immediately shows up 17 times in this gospel. Um, today is Super Bowl Sunday. I know you're all super excited about that, but Linda brought up something in our, our D group this morning that uh, there's, a, there's a campaign that's out there, and I'm sure, unless you've lived under a rock, you have surely seen it. You've heard it on the radio, you've seen it on social media, and you've watched these commercials on TV. There will be two of them today played during the Super Bowl. It's called the He Gets Us campaign. Anybody seen that in the last, I'd say, what, two months, Paul? That's been going around, something like that. Um, and it's, it, it, is, it is supposed to be a reintroduction of Jesus to our society um, and saying, hey, uh, Jesus knows what you're going through. He gets us. Now, I am not here to put any kind of stamp of approval on that. There are a lot of problems theologically with some of the way this is being re Jesus is being reintroduced to our culture. However, I do want to say, I want to steal their idea, Jesus does get us. The, G, the actual historical Jesus gets us. He really does. Uh, the writer of Hebrews, whoever it was, has this testimony that he gets us. When he says, he, we, we have a high priest, or we don't have a high priest who's not touched with the feelings of our infirmity. He, he gets us. He knows what it's like to be tempted in the very same ways that we are, yet he did it without sin. And so he does understand what it is to be tempted, just like you are and I am. And we're going to see that in the scripture today. Now, I'm not going to lie to you. I have struggled this week. Um with how brief Mark is. <laughs> I mean, literally, we have the whole temptation of Jesus as 40 days in the wilderness in one verse. Well, two. Two verses. 
where Matthew takes almost the whole chapter and Luke does and spells out all the details, Mark chooses to give us the highlights and only the highlights. But I want to, and I debated, this is when I struggled this week. This is such a great text. The temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, the very same things that Jesus was, that Adam was tempted with, the same things you and I are tempted with, is to go to one of those other gospels and walk us through using Mark as an outline. And, and that can be done. And as I, as I researched and studied this week, that's what most pastors do. But as you know, I'm not most pastors. I want to be faithful to Mark's text this morning. And I want to give you Mark's good news the way those readers in first century Rome got it. And there's going to be some stuff left out of it. So we're going to, we're going to pull back and look at what is called the Markian theology of temptation. And it's pretty brief because it's fast. Because Jesus got places to go and people to see and a kingdom to build. All right? But with that being said, I want to remind you a little bit where we've been. We saw the preparation for the king, the servant king, in verses 1 through 8 through Jesus' cousin John. Last week we saw the pleasure of the Trinity in verses 9, really through 13, but we did not talk about verses 12 and 13. In verse 9 we saw the Savior, Jesus himself, submitting to John's baptism. We saw the Spirit coming through the heavens, which were torn open, literally as a violent word. The heavens were rent in twain, ripped open. And the Holy Spirit comes down in the form of a dove and literally sits on his shoulder and then a voice comes out of heaven. We saw the satisfaction of the Father in verse number 11. This is my much-loved Son, and in Him I am well pleased. But then we see today is the suffering, and I've just titled this The Suffering Servant King, in verses 12 through 13. Now notice, right after, it appears that there, there, are, no, there are there's no break. Because that's your first letter in your outline today is I want you to notice the timing. Now, Jesus has just had this massive obedience, this, this commendation of his father, this, this empowering of the Holy Spirit. I would call this a mountaintop experience, right? Jesus is taking the first steps. Uh, I don't know why I didn't think of this last week. I thought of it when I posted the sermon from last week. But I want you to think about this for a moment. Jesus walks out of the carpenter shop in Nazareth for the last time. That's a place he was familiar with. He knew how to build things. And he would know how to build things because he built the entire universe as the Son of God. And he walks out of that carpenter shop for the last time knowing that he is being led by the Holy Spirit to go find his cousin, who he hears is baptizing people somewhere in the south in the Jordan River. And he follows that Jordan River until he comes to his cousin. And he submits himself to the baptism of John, cementing John's message that the way was being prepared. Hearts were being turned back to God public confession of sin was being made. People were getting on the right path because the Messiah was coming and now here he is. He comes up out of that water 
It's as if the Father through the Holy Spirit puts his arm around him and says, let me introduce you to my son. I'm crazy about him and I am very pleased with his obedience. You ever had any of those chapters in your life? Mountaintop experiences? Well, if you have, you're not going to be surprised by what I'm about to tell you. But when we look at the timing of this, the Bible says there in verse number 12, what's the very first word in the New King James Version? Immediately. Immediately. No, 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 the, the, the Holy Spirit as a dove has just landed on his shoulder. The Father has just commended him and recommended him to the world. When that dove <laughs> turns into something different, and the Bible says there that he drives, and the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. Immediately. It is often that we find after precious affirmations of our faith come powerful affronts to our faith. Isn't that true? How many have had a wonderful walk with the Lord before you started your day, just fellowship with the Father and the Son through the Holy Spirit, maybe on your couch or around your kitchen table with a cup of coffee, and you head out that door and get a speeding ticket on the way to work. <laughs> right? Or something else happens. You get bad news. You're on the mountaintop, and then immediately what? You find yourself where? In the valley. And here we see that with Jesus. We are never more vulnerable than we are, when we are coming out of a great victory or public obedience. Get ready. Because here we see Jesus, the, the Messiah, the Son of God, comes from a public affirmation to a private temptation. And here's what I want you to see. He comes from a public affirmation to a private temptation, but don't miss this. The same God ordained and planned both. And he planned the timing of both. And I think there's a, there's a message, there's a lesson in there for us today. And it is simply this, trust your dad. Trust your father. Jesus trusted his dad. And we got to trust him as well. And, <laughs> and don't be surprised when you come off a spiritual high and you find yourself in the valley and you're not alone. Satan's waiting for you there. But I want you to know who, who, who's, who, who is behind this. It's the Spirit is the one who, who drives him into the wilderness. Our seasons change, but the God who leads us, no, the God who drives us into those seasons does not change. Did y'all catch that? Our seasons, our circumstances change. But the God who drives us into those circumstances, listen, remains forever the same, immutable, unchangeable, holy God. And is that not a comfort for those who believe and walk in fellowship with this God? I mean, my eyesight's not great. It's getting worse by the day. But I can see out there that there's a lot of, a lot of shiny heads and gray heads out there. Dale, when I first met you, your hair had some color, and I had some hair. Right? Am I telling a true story? I am. We're getting older. I finally 
came to a hard truth this week. And I only got so much energy. I used to think my energy was limitless. And it kind of was when, when, even just a few years ago. But I find now I can, get, I can do so much. And then all of a sudden, there's just not a whole lot left in the tank anymore. Right? But the same God that, 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 that gave me that calling in the first place is the same God who is there when there's no energy left. He's the same unchanging God. And I'll tell you what, there are days that's all I have left to hang on to is there's a sovereign God. And he said he's my Father in heaven and I can trust him. That same spirit who put his arm around Jesus, so to speak, was the same one that was shoving him into the wilderness. Same God. And he's still good. He's still good. That's the timing. Let's look at the tone of this thing. Uh, immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. That word drive can be translated a couple of different ways. It could be drove, sent, or impelled. Now remember... Mark is presenting Jesus to Roman believers as the servant, the great servant. Because in, the, in, in Matthew and Luke, they don't use that word, compel or drive or send, sent into the wilderness. They use the word led. But not Mark. You know why? This is why it's important to understand the purpose, the audience and the purpose. And you're going to see it all throughout. I want that to be the glasses, the lens through which you see Jesus' historical account through John Mark. Here's why he uses sent or driven. It's because servants are not consulted, they are commanded. Did y'all get that? Servants are not consulted, they're commanded. And Jesus is the great what? Servant. Servant of Mark's gospel. And he's not led into the wilderness. He is sent. He is commanded to go into that wilderness by God himself. Because the Father has a right to command the Son. And the tone is pretty firm. That word there, drove, is the word ekbalo, and it's used here of the Holy Spirit. Literally, it is another word for it is casting. He cast Jesus into the wilderness. But then, just jot this down in Mark 1.34, and also verse 39, that same word is used of Jesus, check this out, casting out unholy spirits. It's the same word. He literally took them and threw them out of these people. He commanded them, get out, go away. And by the way, what did they do? They obeyed, didn't they? In another fascinating parallel in the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament, Ekbalo describes driving Adam who sinned out of the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3.24, same word, Ekbalo. He banished him, he sent him away from the garden. Ekbalo. It's also used of casting unbelievers into outer darkness in Matthew 8, 12. 
And it's used of Jesus driving out the money changers from the temple in Matthew 21, 12. Remember that one? He sends them out. He casts them out of the court of the temple. Akvalo. Pretty strong tone there, isn't it? So we see the timing of it. We see the tone of it is a command, a sending, a driving, an impelling. Because servants are not consulted, they're commanded. And the servant willingly obeys. But now I want you to see the terminus. Where is the Spirit driving him to? Where is this thing going to end up? And the scripture tells us that too. The terminus is the wilderness. He drives him, sends him out into the wilderness. Now, we know that John was baptizing not far, not terribly far from Jerusalem, the southern waters of the Jordan, because at that time of year, that's the only place where it was deep enough to get somebody under the water. And historically, that's where we figured John was baptizing. What it looks like is this, as soon as he comes up out of the water, there's no, there's no fellowship afterwards. There's no uh, fellowship meal. There's no celebration party. Immediately, he is driven, compelled by the Holy Spirit, and he goes south and east, or excuse me, south and west of the Dead Sea. Now, in that area is the most desolate part of all of Palestine as he goes south and, and uh, west into that desert barren region. Now, it's a little bit higher. It's like a plateau, and that's how come when Matthew says he, he led him up into the wilderness, literally it is, it is an up. And on one side is, is a mountain range that looks really close, but it's not. It's far away because there's nothing in between it. And on the other side is barren desert. It's a wilderness. And in the scriptures, the wilderness has always been a place of testing, a place of tempting, a place of trial, a desolate place where there is nothing there for your flourishing or your comfort. And as I said, oftentimes after spiritual highs, the good days, following right on the heels of that are wilderness experiences. There's no provision in the wilderness. There's nothing there. That's why it's called the wilderness. And here, why would God, the Father, after confirming and affirming His Son, drive Him into the wilderness? We don't know from this text. All this text tells us is this, and please don't miss it. Now, we can go to the other text and find that. We can go to Matthew and Luke and totally answer that question. That's not what we're here to do this morning. Please don't miss this. Context is king. The impetus here is not on the reason. The impetus is on the obedience of the servant. Something Romans would thoroughly understand and appreciate. It's on Jesus' obedience. He went. And he went to a place of no provision. And he obeyed. The terminus is a wilderness. Now I want you to see the time. We see this in verse 13. And he was there in that wilderness, this place of no provision, for how long, church? Forty days. And he was there forty days. Now this is where we get a staccato High-level overview. Remember, the whole point of, that John Mark is making here is I want to show you the, the immediate obedience. He obeys the Father in the baptism. 
He obeys the Father in the desert, in the wilderness. Obedience that is immediate, that is carried out with a measure of, of joy. The immediate obedience, it is, it is the Son's delight to serve and obey the Father. By the way, let me put a pin in that right there. Is it your delight to serve the Father today? Is it your great joy? Can we bring that down to human relationships? Children, is it your joy to serve your parents? That's what God's called you to do. That is your ministry right now. And it ought to be to you a delight and to them a joy. Here he is, 40 days. Now, it's interesting to me. Let's look at that text. And he was there in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan, and was with the wild beasts, and the angels ministered to him. Do you see anything about fasting there? Uh-uh. So if this is the very first gospel, first historical account written down, and these Romans are reading it for the first time, they might not even assume that he fasted. Because at the end it says the angels ministered to him, so maybe they were there to take care of his physical needs. I don't know. <laughs> the fasting is not the point in Mark's gospel. The point is his obedience, and they spent 40 days in a place of no provision. Now, you could put two and two together, no provision, got a hard time finding water out there, um, although there's certainly no food out there. Uh, he probably didn't have a lot. That's what wilderness implies. But it's the obedience for 40 days. He's out there. Now, these Romans would have known some of the history of the Jewish people. That number 40 in the Bible is always used for times of testing. Times of probation, if you will. Um, and times of preparation. Getting ready. Because think about it. Israel spent how many years in the wilderness? 40? That's a long time, isn't it? 40 years they spent there. What were they doing in the wilderness for 40 years? Well, it only took God a matter of an evening to get the children of Israel out of Egypt. But it took God 40 years to get Egypt out of His people. It's a time of preparation. Egypt's always a picture of the world. It took 40 years for God to get the world out of His people, enough that they were ready to enter the promised land. Matter of fact, it had to be a whole generation that didn't even remember. Hardly what Egypt was. Forty years. Time of preparation. Moses spent 40 years on the backside of the desert getting trained to be humble enough to lead those people out of Egypt. Moses had to be broken in those 40 years on the backside of the desert. 40, all 40 days also reminds us of Moses who spent 40 days without food or water on Mount Sinai and he did that, it appears, back to back. 40 days he's up there, no food, he's fasting in the presence of God. God with his own finger writes the Ten Commandments on two stone tablets. He comes down from the mountain and it's a big drunken party. And he gets so mad he throws the tablets down and the Moses becomes the first person to break all Ten Commandments at once. Um, right? They deal with the problem harshly. And God says, come back up. 
And this time Moses has to cut the stone and Moses has to write down the commandments. He gets them again 40 more days. Time of testing, time of preparation. We also see Elijah, the prophet, went 40 days on the strength of the food given to him by the angel at Horeb to the mountain of God, 1 Kings 19.8. 40 days. 40 days a time of testing, it's a time of preparation, a time of transition. And boy, wasn't Jesus getting ready to transition his whole life, right? 40 days gets you ready, tests you, prepares you. It lets you know what's inside of you. It lets you know what you have and where you're deficient. So it's no wonder that Mark communicates to these Roman Christians that it's been 40 days that they were that Jesus is in this wilderness alone. But was he alone? Now we we see in here that there was not just Jesus in that wilderness. There was a few other characters. First we see the tempter Satan himself, don't we? Look at that. 40 days in the wilderness. Now, now check it out. Again, he's just giving you the highlights because the focus here is on the obedience and the, and, and, and the successful obedience of the servant king, the great servant Jesus, Messiah, son of God. It says right there, and he was there in the wilderness 40 days. Now look at the next word, tempted by who, church? Satan. And that word Satan means adversary. Did you know that? That means adversary. In the other gospel accounts, interestingly enough, in, in, in uh, uh, Matthew and in Luke, John doesn't mention it. His is not a synoptic gospel. Um, he's got a lot of stuff in there that's a little bit different. But in, Mark, in Matthew's gospel and in Luke's gospel, they use the word devil. Which, which means accuser, but not, not Mark. Mark uses the word Satan, which means adversary. And again, it's a fast gospel. Now, I heard some negative voices in the congregation this morning saying that we're going to be in Mark till Jesus comes. I feel like a pastoral rebuke should be in order here, except one of those was my mother, and I just don't feel comfortable with that. <laughs> I'm joking, of course, but, but here, here's the deal. Jesus had an adversary, and Mark wants to show that Satan and Jesus are going to be continual adversaries throughout his entire record of the servant king's walk on the planet. That these first century Romans need to know he had an adversary. Now, being a good Roman citizen, would you have known something about adversaries? Yep. And you would know that Caesar did a really good job of stamping them out. Yes. Mercilessly. Caesar wins. But Mark is wanting these Roman believers to know there is someone with a greater authority and power and a, uh, than Caesar. And it's not because of strength as much as it is obedience. You obey your way to power. And he wants those Roman Christians to understand the obedience of the servant. And so he calls him Satan. 
Interestingly enough, do you notice what else is missing here in this temptation by Satan? What would these first century Romans think that that temptation involved based on this record? Based on Mark's recording? I don't know. They wouldn't know. They just knew that Satan showed up in the wilderness. Maybe God drove him right to the very house of the enemy in the wilderness. And there he is out there, him and, the, him and Satan. I want to say the devil, I want to use his word. Him and his adversary. And all we know from Mark's gospel is that they duked it out. For 40 days, he records no victory. And I think the reason he doesn't bother to tell you of Jesus' specific victory over Satan, the adversary, is because he's going to meet Satan again, just a few verses. That Satan will be his continual adversary who will not be overcome until Jesus comes up out of that tomb in the very abrupt ending of Mark's gospel when he sees the final victory of the servant. Vindicated by the Father who opened it with, in whom I am well pleased. So I want you to see the historical significance here. Satan is the adversary of the servant. His focus is on the conflict with Satan as Jesus' continual adversary. So what does, that, what does that mean for these first century Christians? What does it mean for you and I? It means this, brothers and sisters. If Jesus had Satan as an adversary, who do you think you have as an adversary? Satan is not a joke. He is real. And he is against the people of God because he is against God himself. And if he was the adversary of the servant king, he's also our adversary today. So I want to say this to you. Your adversary is not your spouse. Somebody needs to hear that this morning. Your adversary is not those kids that are driving you crazy and worse than that, some of them are breaking your heart. They're not the enemy. The enemy is the enemy who has come to steal and kill and destroy. Wake up. God has you there for a reason. And he has the adversary there for a reason too. Because like Jesus, he wants to teach you the joy and power of Holy Spirit inspired, you ready for this? Obedience. That's what servants do. They obey through serving. Are you? I'm just showing you this from Mark's pen. So the tempter is there. The continual adversary of Jesus is also your continual adversary. But I couldn't come up with a good T word here, so forgive me. I shouldn't even have said that, but I call this the team. Who else is there? I mean, I looked too. I even went to the thesaurus. No T words to fit. But there, are, there were a couple other entities there in the wilderness and here's what it says. And he was there in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by the adversary, Satan. And he, Jesus, was with the wild beasts and the angels ministered to him. So he was with animals and angels. Animals and angels. Now, I'm not going to lie to you. I don't really know what that was all about. Here's what we do know. Where he was in that wilderness just west of the Dead Sea, very, very barren. Doesn't mean it's lifeless. 
There's some, there's some creatures out there. Still today, they're, they're still there. Um, they're lions. They're desert lions, and they are fierce and unforgiving. In that area, even to this day, there are jackals and hyenas. And there's something about the desert. You know, you, you watch the Discovery Channel, you see the, the lions, the jackals, the hyenas on the Serengeti Plain. Half the time, they're laying down in the shade taking a nap. In the desert, they're hunting because there's so little provision in the wilderness, it takes a lot more effort. And the Bible says that he was not just with the animals, but what kind of animals? The wild animals. Now, we don't know what that means, truthfully. We, we, we really don't, other than he says it. Uh, there are also serpents, vipers in the wilderness. Uh, what are those little stinging things that have the tail? Scorpions. All kinds of creatures out there. The wild creatures. And we, again, we don't, we don't know. Is this literal? I, I, I want to believe that it's literal. But to what end does he say the wild animals were there? Was this, uh, was this something that brought fear to the, to the human Jesus? You, you ever been confronted with the wild kingdom alone by yourself in the dark at night? I have. I remember specifically one time I was stayed a little too long in the deer stand. Okay, I'll tell you the truth. I fell asleep. I had me a great nap. And when I woke up, it was what the old timer called slap black dark. It, it wasn't sunset, Michael. It was black as coal. And it was one of those moonless nights, so it was for sure black. And I'm like, well, nuts, i got to get out of here. Because I was over a mile back in the woods. So I unload my rifle and I send it down the tree on the rope. And I get down. As soon as my foot hits the leaves at the bottom of that stand, I hear, Ooh! and it's a hyena. They got a really high-pitched. Well, then I hear another one. And you ever heard hyenas when they get together? Apparently, I found, I always thought that was over a kill. It's not. It's just how they communicate. Hy uh, hyena. Coyote. Did I say hyena? Yeah, I was hunting in Africa that night. That's why I was late for dinner, honey. <laughs> I got hyena on the brain. <laughs> coyote, very big, very different animal. I heard that. Apparently, they, they do all that yipping and yelling. That's just how they communicate. They talk to each other that way. And there's a whole bunch of them, and they were close. Uh, I was in a food plot, so there was an opening, and there was a trail that was pretty wide. You could drive a four-wheeler down, which I did not have. Um, and, and I could hear them. And the best I could tell from the different sounds of the voices, there's probably a dozen of them. It's not unusual. And I wasn't terribly worried because I was always under the impression they wouldn't mess with a full-grown human being until I watched a show that showed me otherwise, had literal footage of them attacking a full-grown human being. Thankfully, I didn't know that. However, the first thing I did when I got down and heard that is I reloaded my rifle. <laughs> and I started walking what was going to take me about a good half hour, because a lot of it was uphill, out of that place. So I'm walking, and I hear them, and I can hear that they're staying with me. I thought, huh, they're still here on my right side. I can hear them, and they're not behind me on the right. They're right next to me on the right. 
Well, I went over a small rise, and when I get down to the bottom to cross the creek, as I came up out of there, all of a sudden I heard them on both sides of me. Now, I'm not the brightest bulb in the chandelier, C-minus student, but even I can put two and two and figure they might be looking at me as their next meal. And I got something for them if they want to try it. But I will tell you, not only did my heart rate increase, my steps increased. And the velocity of my steps increased. So much so, but by the time I got to the truck, I think I was running. And they stayed with me the whole way. And I got in that truck and turned it on, turned the lights on, and there were all the eyes. And I, I ain't going to lie, that kind of creeped me out a little bit. But I had a rifle. Jesus is out there by himself in a weakened condition. And these wild animals are everywhere. Now, maybe that's what it was like. Maybe it was just a, a struggle with his flesh. But I had to wonder, and I'm, I'm, I'm just, this is a holy imagination here. But I had to wonder if one of those hyenas doesn't sniff him out one night and thinks he's got a quick meal. And right before he makes his move, something inside that dull animal's memory says, that's the one who made me. That one's off limits. I just have to wonder. And you know what's interesting? Mark's the only one that mentions. Now you think, he, he mentions very little. Very choosy about what he includes. Matthew don't mention wild animals. Luke doesn't mention wild animals. But here, Mark does. Another thought, and I, I just can't go there. I, I can't find a good way to do it. I don't like analogizing Scripture unless it's super clear. But some have surmised that uh, this was evil spirits, which really, in Jesus' day, the wilderness was known as a place where the evil spirits dwelt. They kind of hung out there until they went out to do their evil work. Um, either way, he was with these wild animals in this wilderness. And whatever it was, they were there, and it was a real deal. But it wasn't just the wild animals. Who else was there? It was angels. And now we know later, only through Matthew and Luke, that when it says the angels were ministering to him, we know specifically that they were, they were there serving him when it was all over. Right? But we don't know that if we're just reading Mark. All we know is that God has servants. Listen to this. Listen to this. God has servants for the servant to serve the servant. Do you know that's what angel means? Ministering spirit, servant spirit. I also see this. Here he is. Jesus stuck out there. No food, limited water, wild animals. Oh, but I see it again. I think maybe that's what Mark's idea is here. The Father sends servants to take care of the servant. When you hear the hyenas howl and laugh and you hear the mocking voice of the enemy, no, you are not alone. The Father has servants there to serve you, to minister to you, to protect you in the darkest times of your life. Any believers out there say amen to that? Have you experienced some of that in your life? That's how good God is. There are servants sent 
to serve the servant. When we obey and serve our Father, God, I believe, unleashes the angels of heaven to watch over us, to help us, to protect, to provide. They are God's messengers and servants. And they show up when we trust God in the wilderness chapters of our life. Does that make sense to anybody here? Is anyone's spirit resonating with that this morning? Somebody needs to hear that today. And I can't help but wonder this when I look at it. And I'll mention this very briefly because I want to get to the conclusion and, and just give you some takeaways. But you know, Jesus is talked of as the second Adam who came to undo what the first Adam broke. And you know what? If I recall, am I wrong? Didn't the first Adam have a temptation too? Except, I don't know, he wasn't in a wilderness, a place of no provision. He was in a garden of great provision. Wasn't he? And our first father, he had all around him, not wild animals, but tame ones fresh out of creation. They were his friends. And yet the second Adam is in the midst of wild animals. The first Adam has food to spare. The second Adam has nothing. The first Adam is tested by Satan. And he falls. The second Adam is tested by Satan. And he stands fast. The first Adam, when he fell, was driven, there's that word, out of the garden. And then the angels show up to prevent him from the presence of God. Yes? The second Adam stands fast and the angels come to provide for him from the Father. You see the difference? Brothers and sisters, the second Adam has repaired what the first Adam broke. And we can trust that God has our back. He does get us. He doesn't get us so that we can sin. He gets us so that we can trust Him and obey Him when the Spirit drives us into wilderness places. So what are the takeaways here? Well, I, I just jotted down a couple that spoke to me as I looked at this text this morning. It's simply this. What looks like a big negative is not when God is behind it. I don't like wilderness places. I don't like those coyotes following me out of the woods. Don't like that one bit. Right? And I've had some coyotes follow me out of the woods in ministry. <laughs> I've had some of those coyotes follow me out of the woods in my relationships. Y'all with me? I don't like it. But I can tell you what looks like a big negative isn't because I know that God is there. What a, what a truth that is. Here, here's the second takeaway. It's not a sin to be tested. Matter of fact, testing is a good thing. Even though it's a hard thing. I never liked taking tests in school. I tried to cheat once. 
only to find out that my sister, who had taken the test before me, was pulling a sneaky peat on me, and I failed that test. I never liked I never was a great tester. I don't like being tested. You don't like being tested either. But all I mean, it's no sin to be tempted and tested. It's a sin to disobey. Don't mix those up. Don't mix those up because it's when Jesus comes out of that wilderness as those angels put arms around him and serve him, minister to him. He goes back to Jerusalem. You're not going to see that in Mark. There's a whole year that takes place before the very next verse. It's his Jerusalem ministry, his Judean ministry. It's not a sin to be tempted. Here's, here's the other takeaway. I love this. Jesus won. He won. In his obedience... Doesn't mean he didn't face wild animals. He did. Doesn't mean that he wasn't a truly human. He was. And that had to be at a minimum disconcerting. Doesn't mean that the accuser, the adversary wasn't there. He was there. But God was there too. And Jesus obeys for the entire 40 days. And he wins. And I'm going to tell you something. He's still winning today. Amen, church? Matter of fact, can I say this? He's never lost. And he never will. God is not in the business of losing. Not only will he win the battles in your life, he'll do it because, listen, don't miss it, he has won you. He has won for you. He is winning through you, and he will win to you as he draws you to himself. Jesus wins. And he's going to keep on winning. Here's the next one. Our servant king obeys, endures, and is taken care of after the battle. And so too are we called to do the same. Paul tells us endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. God takes care of him at the right time after the battle. And that whole battle was nothing but an obedience of the son to his dad. And we're called to that same obedience to our servant king. We are to, we are to follow in his footprints. So I just want to admonish you and encourage you today. Again, with the words of Paul. Be not weary in well-doing. For in due season, sometimes that's 40 full days. For in due season, you will reap if you don't quit. Are you tempted to quit? Sometimes quitting, giving up, or giving in to fear is the temptation. Anybody relate to that? We don't have to. He won. He did it for us. Rest in his will. Reaffirm in your spirit today that we have a father and he is good. We have a, a king and he has won. And he won through radical, unflinching obedience to the will of his father. And sometimes he got driven, commanded, 
sent places that in his humanity he prefer not to be, and so will you. Amen? But God goes with you. Better in the wilderness with the wild animals fighting Satan every day with God than in the Garden of Eden with plenty without God. Amen? He is with you. Trust Him today. Does that make any sense? Don't give up. Commit your heart to a path of obedience. Unflinching. Don't look for ways out. Look for ways in. Don't look for excuses. Just make plans to obey. God's got an army of angels <laughs> at His command. And He is not going to let that obedience go unrewarded. It's just who He is. May God give us an assurance of the Father's heart today that we might trust Him. Would you stand and pray with me? And as we do, Courtney's going to come. And I want to sing a response song that really speaks to my heart, and I know it will yours too. Let's all stand together. Father God, we come to you in Jesus' name, thanking you for John's strange, fast, abbreviated gospel. It's quick. He gives us just the highlights because that's all those Roman people needed at that time. And today that's what we need because we need to look beyond the details of the temptation and we need to see the spirit behind it, which was a spirit of radical, unflinching obedience. And that's what escapes us so often. And I just believe that some of your kids here today, myself included, we struggle with that. Maybe we need to respond in a, in a physical way. Maybe we need to get on our knees before you today and say, I just want to obey you. I'm tired of making excuses and trying to find loopholes. I, I just want to have a heart that when you say go, I am driven by your desire and command. Oh, that my ways... Oh, that my ways, as David said in Psalm 119, were directed towards you. Then I would not be ashamed when I look into your law. Lord, direct our ways in your paths. Teach us to trust you. Give us a heart of repentance. Let us not fear the testing of our faith, but trust you the impelling of your spirit in our lives today. In Jesus' name, amen. It's good to pray. This old-fashioned altar's open up here. You can come and get on your knees before that king and say, I want to serve you just like Jesus.